look, the three of us, we can't go online and steal Emerald's recipes and then go open up a restaurant in New Orleans and think we're going to make any money. We're going to be broke in three years. You got to live it. You got to live through it. And you got to make errors in it that you can learn from. When you're a head coach, those errors cost you your job. When you're an assistant coach, you can grow from them. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome former NFL executive and coach and current owner of the leadership platform, The Daily Coach, Mike Lombardi. Mike is here today to discuss how great leaders and managers solve difficult problems, handling firing and hiring of staff and players, learning to be a head coach, and we discuss Mr. Miyagi and Gordon Bombay in the always fun start, sub, or sit. We are excited to have recently launched Slapping Glass Plus, our basketball and coaching learning hub consisting of Slapping Glass TV, the Sunday morning newsletter, our private coaches corner community, monthly clinics, and more. You can find out more information about both individual and full staff discount rates at slappingglass.com. We hope to see you there. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Mike Lombardi. Mike, we'd like to start with what we think is an interesting area when it comes to leadership and management. And that is how great leaders or coaches are able to handle situations where they don't know the answers, where they don't have the set practice plan or whatever it is in front of them, and they just have to work and figure it out. From your experience, what are ways or processes that coaches can get to the answers? I think you have to reverse engineer the answers. I really think you have to ask yourself, what must I avoid doing to get a positive result? And and Roger Martin, if you read any of his stuff on Medium, he he writes about this all the time. He calls it WWHTBT. What would have to happen to be true? And so when you start with that, if you're trying to make a decision on recruiting this kid or, you know, changing a coach, what is, what's the truth that you're dealing with or your game planning for an NFL game? And what is the truth? What are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? What are those? And what, what is really true? Often we think of things as being true when they're not, but what is really true? And then when you can start with that and you build a foundation around what you have to avoid before you can win, then I think it leads you to the better answer. And I think it also narrows down your focus. You know, when Steve Jobs was at Apple, he took great pride in in never having a lot of meetings. He would have one senior leadership meeting, you know, and they never had any committees. And I, I love this saying, they've never dedicated a monument to a committee. The problem is when you have so many committees, you start getting the areas where people start talking about results or problems when that's not all true. And I think as a leader, as a head coach, you've got to really have your pulse on that and understand what would have to be true for this outcome to happen and start from there. 
Coach, kind of going back to some of the things that you said in there, one of them being having a pulse on the people around you. When it comes to you know staffs or leaders being in situations where they don't know what the right answer is, how do then they effectively communicate to the rest of their organization? Well, I think you have to kind of define the problem. If you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. It's the old saying, we're yeah. lost, but making great time. You, you got to figure out what you need to do. And, and part of that direction stems from what is true? You know, what is something we're grounded on? What can we base something on? And if you base it on a lie, you're going to wonder why your decision was flawed. I can remember going back to when I was at the Browns, we were getting ready to, to build our draft board and Chester McLaughlin was a dynamic player at Clemson. Just a tremendous, I mean, one of the most dominating defensive linemen, Reggie White dominating at times, but he was lazy. He was kind of a malcontent. He wouldn't listen to coaches. He walked off the field of the game. Well, we set the draft board to him. And so we set the draft board to something that was a variable that we didn't really have control over. So every decision we made off of him was wrong. Looking at this problem solving, if if we can kind of focus then to when you're in the middle of a game and what you've noticed from coaches who, a coach that is like a good pre-post analysis preparing a game plan, and then we go approach a game and you know, now there's more variables and now decision-making becomes important. What have you noticed from coaches that can make these in-game decisions and problem-solve on the fly? Well, I think a lot of it is, you know, strategic planning and visual planning, right? So I think one of the strengths of Belichick is his ability to really anticipate the game on how it's going to go. And it only is from his preparation. And because he's truly a head coach, he sees offense, defense, and the kicking game, and he can combine all three. When problems arise, he's got a he's got a handle on which way the game's got to go and how he can solve the problems. But when you're only focused on calling plays and you don't really know what the kicking game's doing, you don't know what the defense is really doing, there's too many variables you can't control to get the ship back on course. What you have to do as a head coach or as a leader of any company, you've got to be able to educate your people the right way. And you've got to be able to really handle and make them understand what's going to happen moving forward. And when you can do that, when you can do that, when you can predict what's going to happen before it happens, you all of a sudden create an incredible amount of followers. And it only comes through preparation. It only comes through truly understanding the entire process of the game. And I, I say this story to everybody all the time. When I used to get on the team playing from the Raiders, Al Davis would call me over and he would always ask one question. Why did we win? Why did we lose? The answers were never what the media reported. And 99.9% of the time, the answers what the coaches thought they were. Well, we got a bad call or we got this. No, that, that's no. Here's why we lost. Because we didn't prepare for this or we didn't prepare for that or this happened. Sticking on educating your people, and in this case, educating your players, how do you make them adaptive, I guess, to where, yeah, whatever situation you anticipate, they can they can do? Because obviously, it's one thing as a coach or coaches, we come up with great ideas or we know the solutions. But if your players can't do it, it's meaningless. Well, you know, it goes to an old saying, practice execution becomes game reality, right? If you don't rehearse it, if they can't do it in practice, you think they're going to be able to do it in a game? They can't. So you have to prepare for the uncertainty. That's what practice is about. The problem with most coaches is they want to have perfect practices. How many times have you talked to a coach who comes off and say, oh, we had a shitty practice. Oh, my God, we had a shitty practice. I can't believe we had this bad practice. Oh, we're just horrible. That's the best practice you could have because you've got to make as many mistakes. You got to, and Then you could coach off of them. 
You know, Walsh wanted to make sure that it wasn't perfect practices. It was perfect attention to detail to understand what was going on. Then we'll get better at it. Mike, circling back to your time with Belichick, and you're talking about not having perfect practices. When a practice wasn't going well with Belichick, what would he do to continue to get productivity out of the team or out of the guys? You know, if the practice plan wasn't perfect, how did he react to things, an injury, or what was he like in those situations? Injuries were never something. He never showed emotion on those because he thought it would translate over into the team. But in terms of not having a good practice, he would basically get through it and then call the team out on it. You know, this wasn't good enough. We didn't do a good enough job. But he never just included the players. It was we didn't do a good enough preparing. He took responsibility for the bad practice as much as anybody. So it was never the players are bad. Walsh would always yell at the coaches. He never yelled at the players. He always yelled at the coaches. Because he felt like the players would defend the coaches. Like, you're picking on my coach, man. Why are you yelling at my coach? <laughs> right. You know, I'm going to defend, I'm going to, I'm going to play better, right? That was Walsh's mentality. Whereas Belichick was, look, you know, we're just not good enough, fellas. We didn't do a good job not coaching. We're going to do better. And then the next film session, the next teaching session, the next visual, he would really hammer down and point out what was bothering him and how it needed to change and then hold people accountable. Look, we're not going to have this. You know, it's the old saying, we're either going to do it my way or you're going to be gone. Mike, I like to circle back with these coaches and decision-making, perhaps a little bit more of a philosophical question. When it comes to decision-making, should a coach be basing every decision on what's good for the team, what will help the team, what will get wins. And the other side of the coin is when should a coach focus like, hey, this player, we need to take care of them. Maybe we need to sacrifice a play or possession, but you know, what's kind of good for the part is good for the whole kind of approach. Well, I think, you know, I think every player is kind of individualistic. You got to try to take that into account. But also I think the culture is team oriented. So there's cultural rules. Mm-hmm that players can't violate. And then there's individual things that has to happen. Like in New England, no matter what happens, you're not going to get on the field if you can't pass the conditioning test. That's a cultural thing. Uh-huh. You know, there may be something else that goes on that is different. Yep. But there's cultural things that you we're not going to budge on. If you're talking about another player when the rules are speak for yourself, you're going to get called on the carpet for that. But if you want to wear a crazy suit, that's you. That's on you. Nobody's going to say anything. Mike, kind of transitioning a little bit from teaching decision-making or, or talking about those processes, I want to focus a little bit more now on the staff and your, your staff development. So, But starting maybe not from what staffs do well, but what kills your staff and the types of personality traits or the types of things that assistants or people on a staff do that effectively kill the staff and lead to bad outcomes? Well, I think a lot of the problems with the staff has is because the coach hasn't gone over exactly what the culture is for the staff, right? Yeah. I think that's really a big issue. Walsh used to have meetings with, he used to have meetings with every department. I mean, including the girls who answered the telephone. I mean, they knew exactly what was expected of them. And I think the other thing is there's so many people in organizations that organizations get so big, nobody can manage them all. Yeah. And so it becomes really challenging. You can't manage all these people. And so you have people that are doing things that are outside. And I think that that's really the biggest issue is like everybody wants to add more. And when we need more GAs and we need more coaches or we don't, we need less. 
because you can't manage all those people. And you should only have enough of a staff that you actually can lead and manage and will do exactly what you want that you can coach. But when you have independent contractors operating as Vogue, you know, doing their own thing, you're going to break the culture. The culture's falling apart. Coach, sticking on this, I guess the role of delegation and communication as a coach and with his assistants, specifically, I guess, delegation and not being micromanaging. What is the balance between letting these guys do their job and but also being involved? Well, I, I think this. I think it's one of the biggest misconceptions of all time. This, uh, you're micromanaging everything. No, you, just hypothetically, say you became the head coach at LSU. They hired you because you're the best coach. So now you're going to stop coaching to let a guy you hire call plays and call defenses and do put his system in? I mean, would IBM hire somebody to be the CEO and then have the middle manager declare what the philosophy was on the ground floor? Of course they wouldn't. The the guy who's got the head coaching job, he got it because he's the best coach. He's got to put in what he wants on offense, what he wants on defense, what he wants in the kicking game, and then coach the coaches. Give them the parameters of what you're looking for. Look, we're going to run this. I want to run this. I want to do these five things. Now, how do you want to handle it? Let's go. But I'm going to be watching. George Seifert became creative defensively because Walsh was so creative offensively. It spurred him. Mm-hmm. And Walsh didn't handicap him by saying, no, no, George, you can't do this, you can't do that. Walsh gave him a mission statement and said, okay, George, here's what I want you to do. Now run with it. But this notion that, you know, I'm going to delegate everything, I'm Bear Bryant up at a tower, that doesn't work. Because now what happens if that coach leaves? I'm screwed. Right. I'm screwed. I lost my program. Like I'm the best coach on the staff. I got paid the most money. They hired me to build this program. I'm going to build this program. And I don't really want to hear about, well, you know, he doesn't really let me coach. Well, when you get your head coaching job, you coach. I promise you, if you want to win, you'll do it this way. If you want to lose, you'll listen to everybody. It goes back to that whole committee thing. There's a difference between being a leader and being a manager. Have you guys heard this before? So managers do things right. The leaders do the right thing. Yeah. So when you're working for me as a team, I'm not an egocentric. I'm not trying to get all the credit, but it's my program. It's my ass on the line. We're going to do what I, I got this job because I'm the most qualified. But we've entered a world where, okay, if I hire you as the head coach and I can get this guy as the offensive court, we're not putting together a rock and roll band here. We're building an organization. <laughs> coach, just hearing you talk, about this subject and the difference between leadership and management, you know, makes me think a little bit of the difference between a transactional versus a transformational leader and kind of the balance between head coaches doing both, like being great at the transactional stuff, but also, you know, transforming the people around them. How do you see that playing out within the great leaders, the great coaches that you see striking that balance? You know, I think part of being a great leader is knowing your strengths and weaknesses, right? Let, let's take Bill Parcells, for example. Bill Parcells is probably as good a coach as anybody at seeing the entire game. I would say mm-hmm. Bill Parcells is in the Hall of Fame because he's a great head coach. I was telling somebody the other day, was he a great defensive coordinator? I don't know. But he was so good at being able to put his emphasis in all three phases of the game and leading the team and making sure the details were done, even though maybe he wasn't doing the details, right? Mm -hmm. That I think there's a separation. I think you, as a leader, you have to know what your strengths are. Parcells, for example, he knew his strengths. He wanted coaches on his coaching staff that had a background, whether it was Navy, Army, 
some kind of military background that had discipline, that understood that they could give it a task and follow through with it. They were team-oriented. That's the other problem. Most coaches, they get these coaching jobs, and the first thing they start asking is, who runs a good scheme? No, no. Who do I want to build the staff with that fits the profile I have for every coach? How many times I've interviewed coaches? I went to the Final Four in Minneapolis two years ago. I'm sitting there, and they wanted me to interview coaches for this seminar. And I started to do it. And the guy was like, not even close to being ready to be a head coach. I said, no, bro, look, let's flip this around. Let me tell you what you need to have ready. If you're a basketball coach, you want to be a head coach, you better have an organizational notebook. You better have everything written down. You better tell me what kind of point guards you want. Height, weight, speed, arm length. Where are you going to get them? How are they going to handle the ball? What their personality is? This is what you want. I don't care if you're recruit if you're at Iona or you're at Kentucky. It doesn't matter. This is what we want. We're going to go find this guy. Yep. And, and then that's how you're able to bridge the. You bring everybody together. That's basically management of attention. You have a plan. Coach dealing with coaches that aren't quite ready to be head coaches or kind of that theme. How do you you know? people that you've talked to or people that you've helped out, how do you then help them bridge that gap from you know, being a good assistant coach to then becoming a great head coach? Well, I think the greatest thing you have going for you, right, is that you, as an assistant coach, you can basically take notes. I mean, when I first started out, we didn't have Word, we didn't have computers to store it. You know, you had to write everything down in notebooks. Now, you know, you get to become an assistant coach on a basketball staff and you're working for, let's say you're working for Kentucky Calipari. Well, you get a chance to basically learn from him. You just take mm-hmm. as many notes as you possibly can, put them all in one note, how he handles every situation. And then the best part of it all is you're accountable, but you're not making the decision. So you can follow his process. You can learn how he's handling it, what he's doing, what his thought process was, like how he got there and trying to put yourself in his shoes as he's going through it. And I think that's the best way to do it. But best way to really do it is to find who you want to be as a head coach. If you're sitting there as an assistant coach and say you're at Kentucky. And, you know, Calipari wants six, four point guards. I, I'm making this shit up, right? But you <laughs> really want a, a point guard who's like Yogi Farrell. I want somebody who's like me on the court, right? You start writing down the job of exactly what you're looking for. Yeah. And then when you see a player you're watching on tape, say he's playing at Illinois State. See this kid here? That's exactly the point kind of point guard I want. You clip him out. So then when you go to an interview, you show the, guy, the AD that you're talking to and say, see, this, this is the kind of point guard we're going to have on our team. It's not going to be him, but it's going to be somebody like him. And you do that with the power forward. You do it with the, the, the three. This is how we're going to play. And then as an assistant, you're developing your DNA as a coach. And you're going through the trial and error of it all. I mean, it's what Catino did at UMass. I mean, I, I got to press. You know, I'm going to press because I'm not good enough. So he developed his own DNA. Mm-hmm. Look, with the three of us, we can't go online and steal Emerald's recipes and then go open up a restaurant in New Orleans and think we're going to make any money. We're going to be broken three years. You got to live it. You got to live through it. Absolutely. And you got to make errors in it. Yeah. You got to make errors in it. And you also have to be able to make errors that function that you can learn from. And when you're a head coach, those errors cost you your job. When you're an assistant coach, you can grow from them. So remember this, there's only two kinds of jobs you have in life. This is one of the things I screwed up in my career more than ever. There's two kinds of jobs, a job you can grow from and a job you can make a difference in. And if you're trying to make a difference in a job you can only grow from, you're going to piss people off. That's where I made my biggest mistake. I should have just shut my mouth and kept growing. 
Mike, sticking on this thread of first-time head coaches or when you're finally an assistant coach or you're prepared to become a head coach, what are things you should consider when maybe taking your first head coaching job? As far as are all jobs equal or are there jobs that maybe for right or wrong could kind of pigeonhole your career and not help you advance or maybe take it longer to advance? No job, if you're any good, the job you get, you'll make it, you, you will change the job. Yeah. I mean, if you're any good, you will change it. I would say, unless the person interviewing you buys into what kind of culture you want and understands culture and understands how to implement culture, if you take that job, you're probably not going to, and he doesn't understand those things, and you still take that job, then you've made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Mike, sticking on this same general topic, strategic patience in a coach's career. So knowing when to sit and grow in a position and when to maybe jump ship and, and take a new opportunity. How do you advise coaches in that realm to sort of help their careers? First of all, you're never ready for a head coach job, no matter how much time you put in. You know, becoming a head coach is like you're a captain of a ship and you just pass through 200 miles off the coastline. Uh-huh. You know the storms up to 200 miles you could deal with. Once you get past 200 miles, you have no idea. And you can't yeah. prepare for them no matter how hard you try. And all you can do is prepare for by paying attention to other people. You know, find two coaches in other industries that you admire and how they handle things. Constantly work on asking people questions because you're never going to be ready for a head coaching job. You never are. All you're trying to do is keep adding to that notebook and keep trying to make it so that you're preparing for every scenario and just know that you're never going to be ready, that you're going to make some mistakes. But the good thing is you hold yourself accountable. Well, coach, this has been great so far. Thanks for your thoughts here. We want to kind of transition now into a segment we do here on the show that's a lot of fun and we do with all our guests. It's called Start, Sub, or Sit. So the way it works is we'll give you three different topics. You'll pick one to start. You'll pick one to sub. You'll pick one to sit. And we can have a little discussion around it. So we want to start with just kind of a fun, lighthearted one for you before we do a little bit more uh, leadership topical stuff. So to start, these are Start, Sub, Sit movie coaches. So great coaches from some classic movies that you would pick one to start, sub, and sit. So we're going to go with Chubbs Peterson from Happy Gilmore, Mr. Miyagi from The Karate Kid, or Gordon Bombay from the classic The Mighty Ducks. I'm going to start The Karate Kid, Coach. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I would sub Gordon Bombay, and I would sit The Happy Gilmore guy. (laughs) Okay. Why is Miyagi starting over uh, Bombay? Because I think Miyagi understood that fundamentals and simplicity is the key to success. That you you can't get bored. Yeah. Like you can't get bored with what the challenges are. If you're a te- if you believe in fundamental, I mean John Wooden's practices were the same his first year on the job as they were his last year on the job. He never got bored with doing the things that matter and winning. Yeah. And as a coach, you fight boredom. And on that thread, how do you? prevent your players from getting bored with the fundamentals? How do you keep your players engaged? Uh, I think it went, went, it's like New England. If they don't go through the bags every day up in New England to start practice, somebody would be, you know, the players wouldn't know what's going on because the fundamentals is why we win. And if you keep emphasizing that as part of our DNA, the players, it becomes part of your culture because it's part of the fabric. It's who we are. Yeah. You know, it's who we are. We can't do it. It's what Steph Curry is. I mean, most people think Steph Curry is this incredibly gifted player. Right, who's incredible, and he's really talented. Don't, but in Steph Curry's mind, I wrote about this for the Daily Coach. In Steph Curry's mind, he's an overachiever. 
Mm-hmm. And if Steph Curry doesn't come to work every day and work his ass off and just lay it all out there, he, he thinks he won't be able to play the next night. It's the same thing with Brady. Brady has this overachiever mentality. If I don't do these drills every single day, I'm going to fall apart. And you as a coach, you got to educate your players. This is why these guys are so good. You know, they don't ever stop. They never get bored. It's why Belichick's so great. He never, boredom, it never comes in. He never cuts a corner. When he sits there and says, we're getting ready to play Buffalo. Well, you know, when Buffalo was shitty or, or the Jets, like, I, I promise you, he gives the same amount of attention to a shitty Jet game in November as he does the Super Bowl. It's the same process every time. Absolutely. Okay, Mike, moving along. My start subset, we've kind of termed it the dirty jobs of being the coach. So I guess in terms of what would be the hardest as a coach to do, start, sub, or sit, fire a staff member, cut a player, or pass over an assistant. Kind of, There's a vacancy and you hire from the outside. The fire would be the start, the passover would be the sub, and, and the cut the player would be the sit. Because to me, in all these scenarios, there has to be honesty. Like these shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody. Like if you're going to fire an assistant coach, you've got to go to them and say to them, look, here's where we are. You, I need this out of you. I need that out of you. And if you don't, that's on you. Yeah. Because when a guy leaves the building and says, man, he just took me by surprise. I had no idea he was going to fire me. Then that's on the guy who fired you. He hasn't done a good job for you. He needs to tell you why. Same thing on the players. When you go sit down and talk to a player, they want your honesty. Look, here's why you didn't make our team. Here's what I think you need to improve on. Here's what I think you need to work on. I think you could play in the NFL, but you need to do these three things. Or I don't think you're an NFL player. I think until you improve this, you're going to have a hard time making an NFL team. They don't want to hear it, but you got to tell them it. Players only respect knowledge. And it's the same thing with passing over an assistant coach. Hey, the reason you got passed over is because you didn't do these things I was asking you to do. No. Mike, with passing over an assistant coach, how do you, you know, one, have that conversation? Obviously, you, you talk about being honest, but then if they stay within your organization, keep them motivated and hungry to keep learning and growing after they just got passed over for a job. Well, I, I think it's all about the mindset of the company, right? If I'm as the head coach, if I'm not learning and growing, how do I expect my assistants to? Mm-hmm. One of the things that we all have is a mask we all wear. John Updike says the mask kills the face. And that's what happens to a lot of people in the entertainment industry where we become popular. I think that the way you get around it as a staff member, as a head coach, is when you take a course in something that you don't know anything about, then that curiosity permeates way down to the coaching staff. The head coach, he's taking a class in something. That Mm -hmm. means he's curious. That means I got to be curious. And if you don't have people that are curious around you, you've done a really bad job of hiring your staff. Right. I mean, the staff should be like that point guard. He should be a reflection of who you are. Just to further nail down on on that point, when would you then, if you pass over an assistant or somebody higher outside uh, and they're unhappy, when is it time to just maybe cut bait and tell them it's better to go someplace else? Well, I mean, again, this is all back to culture. This is all culture related. Look, if you put the team first, that's number one part of the culture. If you can't put the team first, you don't belong here. You're gonna, I'm going to cut you. Yeah. So it's really easy. It's mm-hmm. in the culture. Like we're not, like these conversations we wouldn't have if you have the right culture. That scenario you just gave me on start subset. Mm-hmm. If you have a really good culture, that's never going to come into play. Coach, moving on to the next start sub or sit. These are three different player traits that can you know kill the culture of your team. 
this would be start subbing sit, I guess would be you know, the worst to the least in your mind. So start sub sit, stubbornness, selfishness, or being unrealistic about either your role or about your abilities. The worst is selfishness. Okay. Stubbornness can be good. You know, there's a determination factor within stubbornness. If you could switch the stubbornness to determination, then I think yeah. it would be. And then the least is being unrealistic because that's the job of a coach is to bring realism to it. I don't want to keep always going back to Belichick, but obviously he's a great example on a lot of these things. But at the NFL level where all these guys are, you know, the top, top percent of the world of athletes, I'm sure they all think that they can be the next max player to a certain extent. So going back to the conversations of these great coaches, how do they put some realistic expectations into guys with, you know, big egos, rightfully so? But I mean, you know, it starts with being a team first. Remember, the name on the front is way more important than the name on the back, right? Yeah. So, like, like if you're going to come here and talk about how you got to score 30 a night, like, you're probably not meant for this program. You're, you're not a culture fit, you know? And then realistically, what are you doing to help the team win? How many guys have Kobe Bryant's picture in their bedroom on the wall? How many guys have you talked to that idolize Kobe Bryant? Yeah. I think it's great. I think it's wonderful, right? I think it's tremendous. But if you ever ask them, do you understand how hard Kobe worked? Do you know, right. like, do you realize how hard Kobe works? Like, unless you're prepared to work as hard as Kobe, take his goddamn picture down. <laughs> like, that, that's, like that, that, you're insulting him. Unless you're willing to get up at four in the morning and go in the gym and shoot till forever. Unless you're willing to come back from a road trip and go right to the gym, take his picture down. Because that's what he's going to do. Right. Like, if you want to be a hero, if you want to hero worship him, that's fine. But don't tell me you're going to be like Kobe. Because this is what Kobe does. Mike, looking at selfishness, and I know, I know it, it, it's definitely a culture conversation, but you know, some of these teams are at the lower levels where you, you can't pick your guys all the time. And so when you have selfishness, how do you breed it out of them? And what discipline or punishment, what role does that perhaps play in getting a selfish guy to fall in line and buy into the culture and be more of a team player, let's say. Well, I think the only way you deal with selfish people is you put them in group three. So there's three groups of people on every team, right? There's people in group one that do anything you want them to do. People in group two are really undecided. And then there's people mm -hmm. in group three who are just, you can't make them happy. They're selfish. You know, you can feed them, you can feed them the French laundry for lunch and they would bitch about how the quality of the food, right? You just can't make them happy. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, you know, in all three groups of people, well, I mean, you talk about what movie had a great leader coach, the movie Hoosiers was really all about, it was only about, it was about culture. Yeah. That movie was about culture and coach Dale's ability to build a culture. And so what he did was he practiced the law of threes in that movie. What he did was he said, okay, Jimmy Chitwood, you don't want to play here. I'm not going to beg you. I'm not going to be like all these other assholes who are coming over here begging you to play. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. I'm not begging you. You don't want to play. You stay over there. I don't really care. And so what does he do by ignoring them? He creates a situation where the kid wants to play and he moves from group three into group one. He'll do anything he wants to do. And I think that's how you have to do it. Mike, going back to those three groups, I, I find it really interesting. And my question is with group two and the undecided, you say, could that be the hardest group to kind of coach or manage? Because I'm assuming with group one and group three, you know where they lie, whether they're they're all in or, yeah, he's going to be 
an asshole and you know, you can deal with that, but these undecided guys, is at times that a challenge, more challenging than the other two groups? Well, the undecided guys really basically are just going to, they're followers. They don't know what to do. So when you mm-hmm. spend all your time on group one, then they'll move into group one. Okay. The only way they get attention is if they're in group one. So what coach Dale did is basically he just coached the players in group one. They were terrible, but he coached them. He coached <laughs> the hell out of them. And so everybody yeah. from group two moved into group one Everybody from group three, you know, was isolated. Then finally he came back. He came into group one. I mean, that's what Hoosiers is about. Everybody thinks it's about Jimmy Chibwood's last shot or winning the state title. It's a movie about culture. It's about how to build a culture when, when you get resistance from people within the building on your culture and how you have to stay true to your culture. And you can't let people, you know, the barbershop dictate what the culture is. Yeah. And you have to have the ability, which is the most important thing of this whole conversation is you have to have the ability to, uh, to handle confrontation. Absolutely. Okay. Mike, my last one start subsit. You hit on it earlier. So I feel I know at least one of the answers, but start subsit in terms of some of the other coaching characteristic traits that let's say you would find the most important to have. So curiosity, humility, or humor. I would go curiosity one would be the start. The second one would be humbleness would be sub and humor would be sit. Belichick's not trying to be funny. He's funny as hell, but he's not trying to be funny, (laughs) you know, but I think most importantly, you have to have the curiosity to constantly improve. That keeps you alive. That keeps you vibrant. That keeps you searching for better answers. And then you've got to be humble and you've got to work at humbleness. Coach, Circling into going back to the humor piece a little bit, and you you know you mentioned Belichick being funny as hell. How much does does having a sense of humor, maybe not trying to be a funny guy all the time, but having a pulse as to adding levity to a room at times, play into how some of these guys operate at the higher levels? Well, I think you have to way to command your message, right? So you can't always be boring and you know be the teacher who's just works on the blackboard and never really talks. You know, you got to have some way to deliver your message. Why, why has the Food Network become so popular? Why is that? Well, because the Food Network proves that most people are visual learners and they want to be entertained when they're learning. Like, I can't read a recipe and cook mm-hmm. it, but if I watch somebody do it, I could duplicate it. Sure. So what do, we, what do we learn from the Food Network? We learn basically that if we, don't, if we don't have some form of entertainment in what we're presenting, no one's going to listen to it. And it's our job as coaches to have that entertainment element or else they're going to lose the audience because it doesn't matter that we know it. If they don't know it, what good is it? (laughs) Right, right. Absolutely. Mike, if I had added vulnerable in there, what role does vulnerable play in being a good coach? I think vulnerable is like, allows you to be humble. (laughs) allows you to be humble. Yeah. Yeah. Vulnerability gives you humbleness because you don't have all the answers. You didn't invent the ball. Right. You know, I mean, I have more basketball coaches read Gridiron Genius than football coaches. <laughs> You'd say that's impossible, right? No, it's not. It's a fact. I talk to more basketball programs across the country than I do football programs. I was talking to an assistant coach at a major team in the Southeast Conference. And one of the coaches has read Gridiron Genius. He's underlined that he's, he's called me numerous times on certain things. The, the guy who works for it never read it. Uh-huh. And the reason is because they all think they know. <laughs> They all, whereas basketball coaches, because it's not in their sport, they're curious to learn about football coaches. And if you don't have that, if you don't have that appetite as a leader, how can you get any better? 
I mean, that's one of the great things about the daily coach for me. And, you know, for the other guys that we all write it, we all write, nobody has a byline on the daily coach because it's all of us together. And it's really important that it's that way because we're all playing a part in it. Yeah. But what helps all of us is the fact that by having to write every day, even though we all don't write every day, you have a sense of curiosity every single day. Sticking with being vulnerable in front of your players, is there a certain point where then, yeah, maybe your players start to lose faith because they're like, this guy's really always questioning or always self-doubting? Well, I think it's part of being humble. How how are you going to tell your players that they suck if you don't admit you fucked up? <laughs> right. Like, I love these coaches that say, well, we're all going to have to improve next year. No, we're going to, players are going to have to improve. That. Oh, you're not going to have to improve either? Like, you're, you're perfect? Like, you're not going to have to show better? Like, you can't coach better? Come on. Right. You, you've got to be able to say to the stand in front of the team and say, look, fellas, I screwed it up. That, that's on me. That's on me. Now, you can't go too far with it and you can't take it. Like, I always felt like Brett Brown. He was such a good guy. Brett Brown always covered up for the players all the time. At some point, they just get used to you taking the blame for it so they don't mind it. But his is taken. Yeah. Sure. You take it publicly, but when that door shuts, I ain't taking all of them now. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Mike. You're off the start sub hot seat. We didn't think when we woke up this morning, we'd be talking about Mr. Miyagi with you, but thank you for scratching that itch with us. That was fun. As coaches, we all can learn so much from things that we observe. Yep. You know, it's like Yogi Berra once said, we could see a lot from looking, you know, and like if you take as a teacher, if you take the way presentations are made, I mean, that's why Jeff Bezos doesn't like PowerPoint. He likes the written word to describe so the, you have to write well at Amazon. Well, Coach, Hare, last uh, question. We'll get you out of here on this. And before we do, thank you for your time. We really appreciate you coming on today and, and yes. sharing your thoughts with us. And we'll get you out of here on this question. Interested to hear, you're someone that's just been around the game. You've been around a lot of great coaches and you've done a lot in your own career. What's one of the best investments that you've made in your career? Well, obviously, besides buying books, reading about different things, it merged myself and Tom Peters, being willing to to try to learn from other sports, I think it's probably the best investment. You watch other sports to make your sport better, and you can learn ideas from. I would say, you know, besides the books, it's being able to be curious, yeah, investing in curiosity, and making sure that you do something that's going to make it different for you. Teach yourself something different. I'm not a writer by trade. I mean, I just had, a, I had, a, I'm not a great writer at all, but I, I write, you know, it's something that you have to work at. And I think that by doing that, I think it helps you as a coach. Yeah. You know, I always, every time I do a presentation, I always put a picture of Branch Rickey and, and Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey, the former general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers is signing Jackie Robinson to break the color barrier. Ricky's career is phenomenal. I mean, it's just an incredible career as a baseball general manager. He broke the color barrier. He founded the farm system. He won World Series in multiple places. And they asked him at his farewell press conference at, at age of 77, when he just got fired by the Pittsburgh Pirates, he had a farewell press conference. They said, Mr. Ricky, you know, you've achieved so much in your life. You know, you broke the color barrier. You founded the farm system. You moved teams. You won pennants. You won World Series. You know, as you look back on your life, what's your greatest achievement? And his answer was, it hasn't happened yet. And I think that's the greatest lesson. I've, I've learned it from Belichick. I've learned it from Walsh. I've learned it from Parcells. I've learned it from anybody that I've ever talked to on the phone. I think that's the one common denominator that shines through. 
you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter for additional insights on this podcast. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slap and Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Those are all <laughs> slapping glass.